This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, everyone, and welcome again. This is our third talk in our course um, on aging and activity and community and social engagement. I'm very excited this evening to introduce Dr. Caitlin Wilhelm. She is one of our graduated geriatrics fellows and now almost graduated quality scholars. We have a quality scholars program based at the San Francisco VA, and it's really based and has a home in our geriatrics division, so we do a lot of work on quality improvement. And she's really distinguished herself in the few years that she's been in our division working on newer models of care for older people, and one of those is prehabilitation, so I'm really excited for her to talk about it. It's a really interesting concept and model. And then also in things like telegeriatrics, so how do we provide care to really rural veterans? Um, so that's the work that she'll be doing going forward once she graduates, which she will do shortly. It's graduation season. So again, thank you for your time. Please welcome Dr. Wilhelm, and we look forward to your questions at the end as well. Thank you. Thank you, Anna, for that introduction. I am really delighted to see so many people here today learning about this very important area, um, one where there's a lot of growing research. And um, you know, more and more older adults are having surgery. So whether you are considering surgery at this time or not, I really hope that you'll carry forward some of the um, information that we talk about today. So today we'll talk about current approaches and strategies to help you prepare for good outcomes after surgery. We'll talk about recovery and rehabilitation. We'll talk about what makes up a standard pre-surgery assessment, as well as a comprehensive pre-surgery assessment, which is now recommended for older adults before surgery. And we'll talk about potential aspects of a prehabilitation plan. So the first step towards preparing for good outcomes after surgery is really being clear about what the goal outcomes are. So often a decision to have surgery is based um, in one or two reasons, one of two reasons. The first is to take care of a problem before it becomes a bigger problem. And the second is to improve symptoms. And there can be overlap between these two reasons as well. And regardless of what the underlying reason for surgery is, Everyone's goal is to have a, a rapid functional recovery as soon as possible. So we're going to talk about what we can do to reach that goal. So during this talk, I'm really going to focus just on elective major surgery. And I'm just going to define major surgery as any surgery that would require you to stay in the hospital afterwards. Any major surgery is a stress on the system. So in this graphic, I'm showing time from left to right, and the dotted horizontal line represents a person's baseline function. So after a major surgery, we know that there is a decline, an abrupt decline in function, and that decline is followed by some trajectory of recovery. And the trajectory of recovery depends on many different factors. One major factor is the type of surgery that a person is having. The most common surgeries in older adults are hip and knee replacement, surgeries on the colon, and surgeries on the heart. So each one of these different types of surgeries is going to have a different anticipated trajectory of recovery. 
But there's also variation between individuals having surgery, depending on individual health factors. So before anyone has surgery, it's really important to anticipate what the recovery might look like and to determine if there's anything we can do to help this trajectory. And a lot of focus has really been paid on rehabilitation after surgery. So rehabilitation is really focused physical activity after a surgery, and it is essential to recovery. So we have absolutely moved away from the idea of bed rest. We know that just five days of an older adult spent in bed can result in loss of a pound of muscle mass, and that is muscle that is required to recover. And we've really moved towards early physical and occupational therapy in the hospital. So that means getting out of the bed very early, starting to move around, working on strengthening, and using adaptive equipment. These types of activities are really essential to recovery after surgery. But what we're realizing is that only focusing on recovery after surgery might be missing an important opportunity before surgery. So in addition to rehabilitation after surgery, in that time leading up to surgery might actually be used to help optimize the chance of good recovery. So that's the central concept of prehabilitation. Instead of just waiting until after surgery, what can be done in the time before surgery to really prepare and plan for recovery? Are there any areas of health and function that can actually be improved before surgery so that the decline in uh, function is not as, uh, as large after surgery? So that's what this green line represents, actually trying to bolster areas of health so that afterwards there's not as much decline. So in this context, prehabilitation really means prevention. So a common definition of prehabilitation is to promote recovery by increasing the capacity of a person to withstand the stress of surgery. It is really an emerging area of research, and there is a lot that we have left to learn, specifically about strategies that we can generalize to all adults for all different types of surgery. So at present, our approach is really more individualized. We know that older adults need a more comprehensive assessment than younger adults before surgery, and that they need individualized plans to improve the chance of good outcomes. So this is just showing a really common timeline before surgery. And if you've ever had surgery before, this might be what you had experienced. So it often begins with paying a visit to your primary care provider, and then a decision that surgery might be beneficial and then getting a referral to see a surgeon. And if the decision is made to move forward with surgery, then what usually happens is a traditional preoperative clinic visit within 30 days of the surgical date. And that visit is usually with a single provider, an anesthesiologist, and there's usually a very focused assessment on a narrow set of factors that impact surgery, and particularly short-term outcomes after surgery. So generally during that visit, the focus will be on these three domains, diseases and health factors, substances like smoking and alcohol intake, and medications. 
So there, there will be an important focus on heart health um, because we know that a significant portion of the highest risk early after surgery has to do with complications of heart disease. And so you'll be asked uh, questions about your ability to tolerate different types of aerobic activity to gauge the fitness of the heart for surgery. There's also attention paid to blood sugar control and people who have diabetes or pre-diabetes. Um, and we know that high blood sugars around the time of surgery do increase the risk of getting infections at the surgical wound site afterwards. So con good control of blood sugar is very important around the time of surgery. There's also attention paid to substance, substances like smoking or alcohol intake. In particular, smoking, we know, increases the risk of complications after surgery by about 40%. So it's highly important for anyone who smokes to really have the tools they need in order to stop smoking before surgery for the best outcomes. And then there's attention paid to medications, both prescription medications and over-the-counter medications. So actually, there are many, a handful of over-the-counter herbal medita medications which increase the risk of bleeding with surgery. And some of those include things like St. John's wort, ginkgo, echinacea. So it's really important to tell your providers what medications or herbal suppl supplements you might take. So these three components make up that standard pre-surgery assessment that all adults should have before surgery. And these components are really the building blocks for planning for surgery. But in addition to these standard components, what we know now is that older adults actually need a more comprehensive assessment before surgery. And that comprehensive assessment should include these additional domains. Okay? The domains are function, nutrition, and mind. And by that I mean matters of the mind like cognition, delirium, mental health, and mental preparation before surgery. Together, all of these domains give a much broader view of individual factors that may impact recovery after surgery. So, um, so the reason that this comprehensive assessment is really important um, is because it allows a person's strengths as well as areas of potential weakness to be identified before surgery. It allows for better prediction of not just short-term but really medium and long-term outcomes after surgery. And we use this comprehensive assessment in order to create a tailored care plan for the individual. So we're going to go through each one of these additional domains of the compre uh, comprehensive assessment, and we'll start with the domain of function. And I think you may um, have already started learning about the idea of function, which is great, and so some of this may be a little bit of a review, but function is so important that that's okay. So function is a person's ability to maintain independence, and it includes all the activities you need to do on a daily basis to stay independent. It requires both physical and cognitive capabilities. And you, I'll give you an analogy. We may think of aerobic activity as really a marker for heart health, but in, we really think of function as a marker for overall health. And in my field of geriatrics, we kind of regard it as a, a vital sign. It's that important. And before surgery, it's actually a more important consideration than considering a person's age, for example. 
So I'm going to break function up into three categories. Basic activities of daily living, instrumental activities of daily living, and mobility. So basic activities of daily living include things like eating, using the bathroom, getting dressed, getting out of a bed or a chair, or taking a bath or a shower. These are truly basic activities. The next level of activities are quite slightly more complex, and they are called the instrumental activities of daily living. These include things like navigating transportation, managing finances, cooking, shopping, managing medications, doing things around the house like laundry and housekeeping, and using the telephone. So understanding if a person needs help with any of these activities, either instrumental or basic activities of daily living, um, is important because it helps us assess a person's baseline as well as help predict potential impacts of surgery. And also it helps us think about if that surgery is going to have any particular impacts on these activities. So imagine that a surgery that um, is on the, the belly that impacts the ability to bend over at the waist versus a surgery on the knee that impacts the ability to bend the knee or a surgery that impacts the ability to move the arms. All of these are going to have different effects on a person's immediate abilities to do these activities after surgery. So another aspect of function is mobility, walking speed, and a history of falls are very, both very important to consider before surgery. Um, the average walking speed for an adult is about one and a half meters uh, per second. And we know that as that rate of walking goes down, that there are higher risks of complication after surgery. Of course, we have to consider if a person is having surgery because of a particular reason that impacts ability to walk, for example, a knee or a hip replacement, we have to take that into consideration um, when assessing walking speed. And also falls. Any fall in the past six months does increase the risk of complications after surgery, including of going to a nursing home after leaving the hospital. The way that we assess function is by getting report from, from the patient, from you. So make sure to tell your team if you need any help with any of these activities of daily living. Tell them if you had a recent change in your independence and if you've had a fall in the past year. Another way that we assess function is by direct observation. So your movement and walking ability might be observed. We also have some different tests that we do. One common test is called the timed up and go test, and this might be something that you would be requested to do. And what that involves is standing up from being seated in a chair, walking 10 feet, turning around, walking 10 feet, and then sitting back down. And if you use a walker or a cane, you can use those things during this test. And we know that if people take 15 seconds or more to complete this activity, that there is a higher risk of falling or complications after surgery. So as a result of this functional assessment, if a person is identified as needing help with any of the daily activities, if there are any expected impacts on daily activities because of the specific surgery type, 
or if a person is at higher risk of having a fall, then we can create a really tailored plan to help before surgery. And that tailored plan might include seeing a physical and occupational therapist. So physical and occupational therapists can help by recommending specific exercises and activities. They might recommend strengthening exercises, um, aerobic activity, or other exercise routines. They can also recommend adaptive strategies and learning those adaptive strategies before having surgery. That might include using a walker, um, learning how to use a a long-handled sponge, or a reacher to maintain independence shortly after surgery. Physical and occupational therapists can also help plan for the transition out of the hospital. They might recommend that perhaps a stay in a rehabilitative facility might be helpful after the surgery. Or they might have other recommendations about modifications that you can make to your home to help with independence after going home. So I'll say a little bit about exercise. We don't yet know what the optimal type of exercise or the dose of exercise is for all different types of surgery. We do know that people who are the least fit before surgery probably have the greatest gains from doing exercise before surgery. We also know that it's probably not a good idea to suddenly start a really intensive exercise routine in the one to two months before surgery. That that actually can weaken the body further and make it harder to recover afterwards. But if a person is pretty sedentary, a good place to start before surgery is just by walking every day, if able. And you can get more structured advice from your medical team or a physical therapist about a moderate intensity exercise plan. And it's never too early to start. If, you don't, if you're not planning for surgery right now, it's a good idea to just start working on your physical activity. We know that only 30% of adults over the age of 65 do some kind of exercise every day. So if you do that, then that's really good. But if you don't, then recognize that you're in the majority, and it's actually a a very difficult task for most other people as well. So stay as active as you can now. You can talk with your doctor about starting an exercise routine, or if you currently do physical activity, then just gradually increase what you're currently doing. You don't have to add physical activity in you know, intervals of 30 minutes or an hour. We know that just adding about 10 minutes of activity at a time can also be beneficial. So we talked about the domain of function as part of this comprehensive assessment. So now we'll talk about the domain of nutrition. So we know that good nutrition is really important before surgery. Uh, It helps to heal wounds in particular after having a surgery. We also know that recent loss of about 10% of body weight is an independent risk factor for having complications after surgery. Uh, But 10% of body weight is, is quite a bit. We know that even losing about 8 pounds before surgery can indicate uh, a problem. So tell tell your team if you've recently lost any weight at all. And you might be asked to do some brief screening questionnaires that ask questions like if you've lost weight recently um, or if there's any other concerns about nutrition. And these questionnaires can help stratify your risk of being undernourished or malnourished.
if a person is identified as being at risk of undernourishment, then it's a good idea to see a dietitian before surgery. A dietitian can help review what you're currently eating. They can make recommendations about increasing certain types of food in your diet or recommendations about how to increase caloric intake overall. They also might recommend adding supplements before surgery. They may recommend adding something like Ensure or Glucerna if you have diabetes a couple times a day between meals in the week or two leading up to surgery. And one important thing to remember, if you're ever recommended to start a supplement, always use it between meals and don't use it as a replacement for meals. People who benefit from those kind of interventions are usually people who are most at risk of being undernourished. But what about people who have pretty good nutrition leading up to the time of surgery? So in general, it's a good idea to eat at least three meals a day made up of protein-rich foods, whole grains, fruits, vegetables, and dairy. And staying hydrated before surgery is also very important. So drink 8 to 10 glasses of fluid a day leading up to surgery, unless for some reason you're instructed otherwise. So now we'll talk about the final domain of this comprehensive assessment, and that is matters of the mind. So cognition, risk of delirium, mental health, as well as mental preparation for surgery. So a common condition that affects older adults after surgery is delirium. Delirium is a medical term. It means sudden confusion. And it is quite common. Up to 60% of adults after surgery may experience delirium. And you may have witnessed it before in a loved one um, or a friend while they were in the hospital. A person can become suddenly very confused, disoriented. They might be either very sleepy, uh, more sleepy than usual, or they can instead become very um, hyperactive or even aggressive. And not only is delirium a very unpleasant uh, experience to have, we also know that it's associated with worse outcomes. People who have delirium after surgery have a higher risk of going to a nursing home after they leave the hospital. Now, the good news about delirium is actually a good portion of it is preventable. So up to 40% of delirium can be prevented. And the way we do that is by assessing an individual's risk of developing delirium before surgery and then create a tailored plan to reduce those risks. So factors which may increase the risk of delirium include cognitive impairment, You may be asked to do some screening tests to identify if there's any um, issues with cognition before surgery. High levels of alcohol intake increase the risk of delirium. Vision or hearing problems. You can imagine that if it's hard to see or hear, that being in a very unfamiliar environment after a large surgery can be that much more disorienting. A history of delirium increases the risk of having delirium in the future. And there are certain medications which are also known to increase the risk. So these medicines can either be prescription medications or they might be medicines that you get over the counter. And some of the biggest offenders are medicines that people may take for to help with sleep. 
one uh, medicine that you can get over the counter that is sort of notorious for increasing the risk of delirium is, is Benadryl. So it's important for your medications to be reviewed before surgery. And then if any medicine that's identified to increase the risk of delirium uh, is identified, then that one should be stopped before surgery if possible. So based on an individual's risk factors for developing delirium, as well as the specific risks about with the surgery that they're having, a tailored plan can be created to reduce the risk. And preferably that plan is one that continues throughout the hospital stay. A tailored plan is always going to include bringing any assistive devices that you may use, such as hearing aids, glasses, or dentures with you to the hospital, so you can continue to communicate and be aware of what's going on around you. A tailored plan may include adjusting medications, particularly those medications which increase the risk of delirium. And you should feel comfortable asking, you know, what type of plan is going to be put in place for you to reduce your risk of delirium in the hospital? You can ask if the hospital has something called an acute care for elderly unit or an ACE unit, or if they have a geriatrics consultant available. ACE units are uh, services that help reduce the rates of delirium using evidence-based techniques in the hospital. And many hospitals have this available within our UCSF system, UCSF here at Parnassus, as well as ZSFG and the VA all have ACE units available. So also mental health is important to assess before surgery. Treatment of anxiety and depression before surgery can actually help reduce symptoms and improve quality of life after surgery. And this makes sense, um, logical sense. Depression can be associated with symptoms of low energy, fatigue, and low motivation. So if those symptoms are present, it can be that much harder to participate in a rehabilitation plan after surgery. So if you have any concerns about depression, bring it up and make sure that that's addressed before having surgery. Now, many people also just have anxiety about the upcoming surgery. That's really common and really important to acknowledge. And there are techniques that can actually help reduce stress and bring on relaxation before surgery. And importantly, these techniques can really allow for a calm, relaxed focus on positive outcomes after surgery. Some of those techniques include music therapy, guided imagery. There are many videos available um, just on, on YouTube that can walk you through a guided imagery meditation in preparation for surgery. And visualization is another technique that can reduce stress before surgery. So imagine a place that gives you peace, and imagine all the different sensations that go along with being in that place. Um, this is the place that, that I imagine off the coast of Big Sur. So another important technique is deep breathing exercises. Not only can deep breathing actually reduce stress before surgery, they actually, by strengthening respiratory muscles, might help reduce the risk of pneumonia after certain kinds of surgery. So this is one technique for deep breathing. It involves sitting quietly, taking a deep breath in on a count of four, holding that, 
and then breathing out on a count of eight. So the important part here is to breathe in and then breathe out twice as slowly. And you could do five cycles like this several times a day, both in the time leading up to surgery and also through the recovery time as well. So we've talked about potential components of a individualized prehab plan, but what is really important is also for you to be an active, informed member of your team. So patients who have clear expectations about the surgery as well as the recovery process are more satisfied with their care. So ask, once you've had a comprehensive assessment, what does this assessment say about me? How is this surgery going to benefit me? What is recovery likely to look like? What will my function and independence be in six months or 12 months? And if you're prepared um, by the answers to these questions, you can also prepare those around you. You can line up the help that you might, might need for any anticipated um, needs after surgery. So in addition to you being informed, it's really important for you to inform your team. Talk about what your health goals and your priorities are. Before surgery is actually a really good time to update or complete an advanced directive if you've never done one before. You can put in writing who you'd want to make decisions for you, even if you were temporarily unable to make decisions for yourself. You can also write down what some of your priorities for healthcare might be. And as Anna said, you'll learn more about advanced directives during the session on June 28th. So at the beginning, I showed you a timeline, a typical timeline before surgery that doesn't include prehabilitation. What about a timeline that includes prehabilitation? So it starts pretty much the same uh, by a visit with your primary care provider and then a referral to the surgeon. And then instead of having a single visit with an anesthesiologist, it includes a more comprehensive assessment before surgery, usually within one to two months ahead of the surgical date. And that comprehensive assessment is often done by a team. And as a result of it, an action plan can be created. And that plan can help you to make short, medium, and long-term plans for your recovery. The different types of professionals that might be helpful as part of this process include your primary medical and surgical team, of course. It may also include physical and occupational therapists, and they can help create individualized exercise plans and as well as anticipate any post-surgical needs for independence. A dietitian can be helpful to review your diet and make recommendations for changes or addition of supplements. A geriatrician is a physician who specializes in aging, and they can gauge your risk of de developing delirium and then make a plan to reduce that risk. You may see an internist who specializes in medicine around the time of surgery, and a social worker. They may be able to help you with planning for after the hospital stay to make sure that you have the services you need when you're ready to leave the hospital. So fortunately, in San Francisco, we have available to us um, several comprehensive pre-surgical clinics. These clinics pull many of the professionals I just mentioned into a single place, so they can do the comprehensive assessment at once and then provide you with an action plan.
In a recent study that just came out this month, this type of team-based comprehensive assessment resulted in improved outcomes for older adults after surgery. So if you're planning to have surgery at UCSF, the comprehensive preoperative clinic at UCSF is called the Surgery Wellness Clinic, and you can ask your surgeon for a referral to that clinic. If you happen to be a veteran who gets care at the VA, there's a comprehensive preoperative clinic available there as well, and it's called the Veterans Integrated Perioperative Clinic, or the VIP for short. And they're currently seeing older adults who are preparing for orthopedic surgery. If for whatever reason you don't have access to this type of comprehensive preoperative clinic, you can still help create a prehabilitation plan for yourself. Keep the major domains of the comprehensive assessment that I talked about in your mind and make sure to tell your team about any concerns about your function, nutrition, and ask about your risk of delirium and discuss any concerns about mental health. And definitely ask if there's any specific exercises or tasks that you should do before surgery that might help, or if you would benefit from seeing a physical or occupational therapist, a dietitian, a geriatrician, or any other specialists that might be helpful. And of course, it's really never too early to start preparing for good outcomes after surgery. So if you have no plans for surgery now, lay the groundwork for healthy habits. Work with your doctor to manage your health conditions. Stop smoking if you smoke and keep alcohol intake at healthy levels. And importantly, be as physically and mentally active as your abilities and your conditions allow. So I will be happy to take any questions that you may have. So the question is, um, is, are there hospitalists in the UC system, and what are their responsibilities? So a hospitalist is a type of internal medicine doctor who is based in the hospital. So their clinical practice is only within the hospital. And we have a very robust program of hospitalists in the UC system. Their responsibilities around the time of surgery are really to, once a, a person has had surgery and is finished with the surgery, they assume sort of primary, in many cases, primary or joint care um, with the surgical team, and they manage medical problems. They can also help focus on issues like delirium and help reduce those um, risks. And they really help coordinate with all the different professionals that you might see in the hospital as well, like physical and occupational therapists. I see. So the question is, what is UCSF doing to educate um, providers overall about helping uh, patients prepare for surgery? So um, I think one of the, the big factors is actually this creation of the comprehensive preoperative clinic at UCSF. It's um, been around for just a couple years now, maybe less, and making sure that all providers know that that's available, um, especially for patients who um, may have particular areas that could be improved before surgery to improve their outcomes. 
So I think the availability of that clinic um, and providers knowing that they, they can refer their patients who are considering surgery to the clinic. Um, so the question is about the risk of delirium as age increase and how to project that risk um, for a person of a of given age. Um, so you're absolutely right that risk of delirium does increase for age with age, um, but there are many different individual factors that go into increasing the risk of delirium aside from age. And some of those factors I mentioned. And other factors include the size of the surgery and what the ex- where the person is expected to be after surgery. For example, um, if after the surgery a person's expected to spend some time in an intensive care unit, there's likely going to be an, a more increased risk of delirium as opposed to someone who might not go to an intensive care unit after surgery. So um, it's really difficult to sort of project a um, a concrete number because there is so much variability based on the context, both the individual and also the the context of the the surgery and the hospital. Yeah, well, there's there's quite a variability in the way that um, delirium presents itself, and you know sometimes people can get very very sleepy, and it can be difficult to engage with them. And on the other hand, yeah, people may sometimes see visions which could either be um, sort of pleasant, but I think more often are, are disturbing um, to the person who's experiencing delirium. It is common, but it is something also that we really try to prevent, um, not just because it, may, you know, because of the experience of the person having delirium, but also because we know that it's associated with um, worsened outcomes. There are a few studies um, looking at it. The problem is that the studies... Oh, yes, sorry, yes. So the question is, are there any studies that look at applying these prehabilitation interventions and compare those interventions to not doing them before surgery? And um, there are some studies done and the, which are promising uh, with these specific types of interventions that generally fall in the same um, categories that I presented today. What's difficult is that the studies are often just at one site so far. They might be smaller, and they tend to be limited to just one type of surgery at a time. So um, generalizing their exact specifics of the intervention that they do in their studies is very difficult um, to the more general population of people getting surgery. Yeah, so, so the question is about more emergent surgeries um, and whether some of these principles may be applied to help improve outcomes after emergent surgeries. So we usually think of emergent surgeries as surgeries that would have to happen within six hours um, or around there in order to prevent a, a bad outcome. And... Um, So in that case, of course, it is really difficult to do that preparation that's part of prehabilitation. But um, there has been a lot of effort and movement to really improve uh, the environment in the hospital, that both the the surgery um, procedure itself to reduce... Um, risk an individual through choice of you know what kind of anesthesia is used for the person, um, and then to 
to change the hospital environment and care processes to help reduce, for example, delirium. Um, and then the, the real focus, of course, is on, on rehabilitation and making sure you're getting up and out of bed and mobilizing after surgery. So some of the same um, concepts in terms of focusing on function and um, mobility and rehabilitation, those can definitely be helpful in the after surgery period um, when there's an emergent surgery. Much harder, yeah. Which is why it's good, you know, laying the healthy habits even before surgery is on the horizon um, may serve a person very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely right. You're saying to, that um, alcohol intake and heavy alcohol intake can definitely increase the risk. So um, keeping those at baseline to healthy levels is absolutely a good idea. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, the anesthesiologists, I don't want to minimize their role in this whole process either. Um, their decisions about what type of anesthesia to use and whether there needs to be general anesthesia or if local anesthesia, more targeted anesthesia can be used, can also be important parts of, of surgery planning. Yeah. Yes. So delirium is usually experienced. Oh, yes, sorry. So uh, the question is if um, delirium is a long-term or a short-term effect. And delirium, the experience of delirium is usually short-term. In many people, it resolves within days or or weeks. Um, But the long-term effects, we know that just someone having delirium, even if it resolves in just a couple days, we know that the presence of delirium at that time point is associated with longer-term increased risks, um, which could include going to a nursing home after surgery um, or having some long-term more difficulty with cognition. But in many people, that delirium does resolve pretty quickly. The question is about cognitive loss and anesthesia and if it has to do with age or if it happens in younger people. Um, So I think the effect of anesthesia on cognition really... it has a lot to do with the person's brain, an individual's brain, and um, whether there are certain risk factors that put them more at risk of having... um, difficulties with cognition, sort of like what are all the factors that might increase the risk of person, someone having difficulty with cognition, and is that anesthesia going to interact with those increased risk factors? So you might think of it as sort of adding risk factors and then the overall um, risk of the anesthesia interacting with it. So Age might be one of those factors, but there can be other things, too, um, such as using alcohol um, or other substances might increase the risk of of having um, cognitive difficulty after receiving anesthesia. So it's sort of everything together um, rather than one one specific um, issue like age. So the question is if um, there are several surgeries close together and if those having anesthesia multiple times in a short term, short period might increase the risk. Um, 
You know, I would I would probably just say that the um, any time that a person is exposed to anesthesia or a surgery, that that in itself is can can be a potential risk, and so that risk would just be potentially increased by having um, more of those exposures. But the I I actually don't know sort of. If how that compares to grouping surgeries versus if the surgeries are spread out over more time and if that would make any difference. Good questions. The question is, how can you best prepare if you live alone? And I, I think the answer is to um, make sure that you are really clear about any type of need that you might have after surgery. Um, so making sure that you have a comprehensive assessment before surgery and then understanding exactly how the surgery is going to impact your ability to um, do the activities you need to continue living alone. And if those impacts can be identified, um, if you know that you're going to have you know, or not be able to drive for a, you know, two months after having surgery, knowing that ahead of time can help you put in a plan in place for how you're going to manage that after surgery, whether that's you know, having a friend or a family member who might be around um, and available to help you or um, through other means. Yeah, that's a good question. Does anybody have any lingering questions about other things that we've talked about in the course or um, anything that, that we can be helpful in answering while we still have the, the spotlight? Yes. I'll ask you another question. Um, yes. With this kind of comprehensive care, do you know how insurance reacts to paying for these? That's a really good question. Um, and I... Yes, yes. The question is, um, with the comprehensive assessment, how does insurance, um, and does insurance pay for it? Um, I, you know, with the comprehensive clinic at UCSF, I don't know how exactly that works with insurance um, and different insurance plans, but I haven't heard it come up as a problem or as a barrier for people being able to get into the clinic. Um, and the other aspect is that many parts of this comprehensive assessment could be carried out by a person's primary care provider or other um, consultants like a geriatrician, and that those would generally be covered by, by insurance in order to see those providers. Yeah. Good one. <laughs> That's a really great question. Um, Do you want to repeat it? Yeah, the question is... Um, that at what age or what uh, what point should a person consider seeing a geriatrician? Um, and I would just say that there's no specific age for seeing a geriatrician. Um, sometimes you'll hear the numbers age 65 thrown around, but um, there really is no specific age. It's, I think when you see a geriatrician, um, the focus of a geriatrician that's what, is what's going to be different than for a family medicine practitioner or an internal medicine practitioner. I think the focus is a lot more um, holistic on a person's health. There's a lot more focus on how all types of health factors for an individual come together, and especially how they impact a person's ability to be functional and independent. Um, I think you're going to get a lot more focus on those issues with a geriatrician than you might with a different type of provider. 
Um, and they tend to also be much more focused on making sure that whatever priorities or goals that you have for your own health care is represented in uh, the types of medical care that you receive. So it's really a personal decision, um, but I, I think obviously think geriatricians can be extremely helpful for people, especially in making sure that a person remains independent um, for as long as possible. Can I add yeah. something? Um, I'll just add that um, you can definitely check out the American Geriatrics website. They have also an affiliated website, Health in Aging, that has some health in, healthinaging.org, one one word, health and aging, that has some tips and I think addresses this a little bit. I would say, yes, we've inherited the 65-year-old cutoff, which was brought up at another point as, as clearly an arbitrary one, as we realize that chronologic age is really not reflective of physiologic age or conditions that might be considered geriatric. Um, so a, a lot of people are 65 and they look very, very different in terms of health conditions and function and social needs. Um, and I would agree with everything Caitlin said, and I would just add that in trying to be a little more precise about what we can offer, because it's pretty clear that you're not going to go to a cardiologist if you don't have a heart problem, but or for very long at least. But in geriatrics, because the age thing is really isn't that helpful, we what you know what can we be more specific about? So some things that have been put forth are really people in their mid 80s and up tend to have at least one geriatric issue that we can often address and help optimize. Um, people with dementia, which is sometimes a real sentinel condition and really changes the paradigm of care, and we tend to work with a lot of folks with dementia, so that's something we're pretty good at. Anybody with a functional problem, really, and, and, um, so, and usually that's an activity of daily living, so a basic functional problem is really in our wheelhouse at no matter what age. And then multiple chronic conditions where they're all just bumping into each other. So the medications and the conditions are all getting a bit much and um, quite jumbled and overwhelming. That's a place where a geriatrician can be really helpful to help focus care on what's most important to that person and what's really going to get them the most quality compared to you know, the highest dose of every single medication. So we can really help pare that down. So those are some instances where I've seen people try to limit their practices. So either 85 and older, certain conditions, particularly dementia, and then functional impairment. What was the name of the website? So um, I haven't looked at it in a while, but health in aging, healthinaging.org is a consumer-oriented part of the American Geriatric Society, but they also have some uh, existential uh, web pages about what is a geriatrician and what can we offer, which you're welcome to take a look at. Um, and I will say I run a geriatrics console clinic, and we do not have an age cutoff, e either a high, which of course would be ridiculous, or too low. So we have some 50-year-olds that we see who you know, have had a major stroke or something like that and have a lot of functional needs. And then we have people who are 97 who are like, you're doing great. No need to see you, you know, for another 10 years. Um, so I think there was another hand that came up. You know, I think the other, co the, so the question was really about what age or what condition would you switch from perhaps an internist or a generalist to a geriatrician. Um, I should also be clear that one of the reasons you've never encountered a geriatrician is there are very few in this country compared to the need. And so we, we have, we are sort of this 
sub sub specialty within our within a very general field in that we take a very holistic approach but yet we're sort of these specialists that are few in number so one of our approaches is to really disseminate care models like prehabilitation you don't necessarily need a geriatrician there if you follow the model you can provide good geriatric care or things like the acute care for elders unit which uh, Caitlin described and which, which will be a key part of the discussion in two weeks. What is an acute care for elders unit in the hospital? And so there are a lot of care models that are disseminated that were created by geriatricians that do not need to be run by geriatricians or have a geriatrician. And it is hard to find a solo geriatrics practice that has all of the um, appropriate disciplines. There, A lot of us are more in consultative modes because there just aren't that many of us and we're trying to have a bigger impact on patient care. But um, San Francisco does have geriatrics clinics. And I would say mobility is also another really good sign that somebody might need uh, or might benefit from seeing a geriatrician. So somebody's starting to have more limited mobility and their what we call their life space, so how far they go in an average day, is starting to shrink. And they're, they're, at, they're at home more. Um, and that's also a time to also look into different models of care like uh, house calls or there's a really famous program here that, that started a movement called, um, the program itself is called Onlock, O-N-L-O-K, but they started the, the program for all-inclusive care of the elderly, which is a community-based program, but that does wrap around care in the community, including things like transportation. So just think how key transportation is for somebody who's having mobility issues. They actually have a model that can incorporate that within their medical model, whereas none of us can do that in the, in the real world where we're billing Medicare or, or Medicaid so, or private insurance. None of those pay for transportation. So um, forgive me for elaborating, but I hope that, that got to some of your questions. Any other questions about, particularly about prehab or hospital? I'm taking notes, by the way, so that we'll, we'll answer some of the questions you have specifically about the hospital next week. Yes, ma'am. So the question is about um, the instrumental activities of daily living, which include things like paying finances, transportation, um, doing stuff around the house in particular, and how what types of services might be available in San Francisco to, to help out with those types of activities for individuals especially that live live alone. So I'd say we probably could do a lot better of a job in San Francisco um, and really across the country um, to help out with supporting people who are having trouble with these types of difficulties. And in general, um, hiring someone to help out with you know these types of needs does not fall under insurance coverage, so it becomes an out-of-pocket expense for people. There are some um, exceptions. For example, if a person um, has Medicaid, Medi-Cal, they may qualify for getting um, services through the state of California to, to have someone around that will actually do these activities and help out with these activities around the home. Um, and there are some other um, you know, city and state services. I don't know if you know any. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, so there's there's ways to connect people um, with those services that are available. Um, but overall, it, you know, we could certainly use more services like that. 
Yeah. The Institute on Aging is a really excellent um, resource. They are located on Geary Boulevard. You can also look on their website, and they do have a phone number that you can call and sort of describe any potential needs that you might have, and then they can act as a conduit if there are services available to help with those needs to help get you connected with them. So thank you for bringing that up. There are... um there are some covered short-term programs for home uh, home assistance. If you have like a short-term need, for example, uh, related to a medical need, like a surgery or something like that, I think there are some programs. I know we have one that's covered through our San Francisco Health Network. Um, but the primary support for most people, and actually the VA has a program as well, right? The, I don't know it that well, but I believe it's called AIDS and Attendance. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So some people qualify for that program. But uh, Medi-Cal, as part of a program for long-term supportive services, uh, which is a um, federally funded but often sort of locally administered program um, and state-funded, um, they have... They, exactly what Caitlin described, which is if people essentially are very poor, so they qualify for Medicaid, can get some assistance. And in this city, we have over 22,000 people receiving those sorts of services. So um, they have to have a functional impairment to get those services, and the hours are allocated accordingly. There is nothing that will support you to be independent in your home 24 hours a day if that's the level of care you need. So that is all patchwork, and there's a few programs that will help a few people if it's going to imminently prevent institutionalization. But for the most part, once you get to a certain point of needing a certain amount of support in your in your own home to be to remain there, and there's you know essentially nobody who can do it informally. Um, essentially, we're looking at other levels, other places to live that have more services. So there is, for the, and this is true in communities essentially across the country, that there's this enormous gap between people who can afford it no problem and people who do are, so Medicaid requirements are very, very low in terms of, so you cannot have more than 2000 in savings. And for the average person who lives alone, it's something like you can't make more than 12000 a year. So... You're, you know, so there's a big gap for most most people, which is um, there's no, you know, community funded, state, federal funded support. So there's a lot, but there's a lot of services that fill in the gaps, right? Okay, as as usual, a really wonderful, thoughtful audience with great questions. Thank you so much, everybody. Really look forward to seeing you in two weeks. Thank you. Thank you, Caitlin. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.